You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, Acts chapter 12 concluded with Luke mentioning that Barnabas and Saul returned to the church in Antioch from Jerusalem and brought with them John Mark. And this was a preparatory statement for now what Luke is going to record next, the systematic evangelization of the nations. And really what Acts 13 launches is not only the second half of the book of Acts, but the era that we are still living in today. Now, of course, the book of Acts itself and the day of Pentecost launched the era that we are in today. But for the first 10 years of the church and Acts chapter 1 through, you know, chapter 10, 11, or 12, the church was predominantly Jewish. And the mindset seems to have been that a person would need to convert to Judaism before they could convert to Christ. But now in Acts 13, we're going to see the gospel going out into all of the nations, irregardless of nationality. And so in that sense, this chapter really is more closely tied to the era that we are living in today. Now, the missionary team of Barnabas and Saul and then also John Mark began in this way. Luke records in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they go there and return to the church at Antioch. Jerusalem was, if they were the mother church, this church in Antioch will prove to be the missionary church. And there, Luke gives us an insight into a little prayer meeting that was happening. This happens to be one of my favorite types of prayer meetings. It was the prophets and teachers, the leaders of the church there in Antioch, gathering together and seeking the Lord uh, in unison. Seven are mentioned. Uh, you have Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menean, Saul, this gathering together of these different men. And they came from different backgrounds, a very cosmopolitan group. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon was a Jew, but with a Roman name. Lucius was from northern Africa, from Cyrene. Niger was more than likely not a Jewish man, but a Gentile. Menean was apparently in contact with the royals. He was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, it says. Uh, so he was raised with Herod Antipas, it believes. And of course, Saul, a Jew of Jews, so, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, trained in rabbinical schools. So you had this very diverse cosmopolitan group gathered together, just very beautiful, something that modern churches should seek to and prayerfully try to emulate. 
And they were there worshiping the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, the theological center of the Old Testament seems to be God's word in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 to the people of Israel, that they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we know that the church does operate as that kingdom of priests, that God has made us in that way. And so there they were like priests worshiping the Lord, loving the Lord, honoring the Lord. Not only that, but they were fasting. They may have been seeking God's will and God's plan, maybe wondering what the next move from God would be. And Luke records that the Holy Spirit said, separate Barnabas and Saul for me for the work to which I have called them. Now, it's possible that this was an audible word from the Lord, a very special moment. This is the book of Acts, after all. But it seems likely to me that a word would have been given or a few words would have been given through uh, the prophets that were there. These were the prophets and the leaders, the teachers of the church in Antioch. So it wouldn't be surprising if a prophecy or two floated into that time of prayer or even just a mood in prayer, a sense in prayer, you know, as you've probably experienced as you're praying for something that really it seems like your prayer is kind of catching fire. Like you just know exactly what to pray for, what to ask for. That at times is the Holy Spirit guiding a prayer into a realm that he wants it to go into. And so perhaps after just this whole prayer meeting and different words from the Lord and different prayers that had been uttered, the group came to the conclusion that God was trying to call apart for the work of the ministry and the work of missionary work, Paul and Barnabas. Their hearts must have been burning for the Gentile nations. They wanted to, to go. Paul, of course, knew from Jesus that he was to go. And there they are like a racehorse rattling in the starting block, waiting for the gun. Then, verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is good. They proclaim a little fast and just kind of spend some time specifically seeking the Lord. They put hands on them, recognizing what God was already doing, and prayed for them and sent them off on this brand new missionary journey. Now, it goes on to say in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, just sort of a recap from Luke, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So they landed on the east coast of the island of Cyprus. And remember, this is the island that Barnabas is from. And they went to the synagogues first and preached there. Paul's gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and he would live that out by going to the synagogue first. Any Gentile that was present would be familiar with the Old Testament and would make fresh evangelistic work amongst the nations even smoother. Now, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, 
they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, which means a governor of the province, a man named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, or the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So we have this man who practiced sorcery uh, coming up and attacking, if you will, and trying to influence the proconsul or the governor who seems to have been interested in Paul and Barnabas's message. And the sorcerer's whole desire was to turn him away from the faith. He knew that if the faith took hold, he would lose his influence and position. But Saul, verse 9, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, this is the first time that Paul is referred to as Paul in the book of Acts. Saul, he says, who was also called Paul. Uh, This was his Roman citizenship name. Saul was his Jewish name. So it's not really a name change. It's just that now he's ministering in the Gentile world and so using his Roman name. And from this point on, Paul is going to be the leader. His name will precede Barnabas's name, except in Acts chapter 15 and also in 14, times when they are in Jerusalem. Paul calls the sorcerer a son of the devil. Uh, His name, Bar-Jesus, Bar means son of. And so his name, son of Jesus, Paul wanted him to know that that was not at all the case. He was no son of Jesus. He was a son of the devil. Now, when Paul is doing this, it might sound abusive, authoritarian, uh, harsh, but this is love. This is love for Elymas, the sorcerer. For one, he needs to be shaken out of his delusion. And this is love for Sergius Paulus because his life eternally is on the line. And so Paul, not messing around, gets right after it and pronounces a curse upon this man. The hand of the Lord is upon you. And this mist and darkness, likely a temporary blindness, comes upon this man. So this is Paul's first recorded miracle and his second of four encounters with the demonic in the book of Acts. Or the second of four encounters with the demonic in the whole book of Acts, not just Paul. Then the proconsul, verse 12, believed when he saw what had occurred, For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so now the ministry of Paul is going to take a decidedly Gentile slant. Now, there's, of course, a ton of imagery in this whole episode there on the island of Cyprus. Uh, You have a Jewish sorcerer opposing the gospel, but a Gentile receiving the gospel. You have blindness being brought upon the Jew, well, the Gentile is able to see the truth. 
And the blindness was for a time, verse 11, suggesting that it was a temporary blindness. And of course, Romans 9, 10, and 11 seems to indicate to us that the blindness of the nation of Israel is only for a time, but that someday the olive tree will revive and they will receive their Messiah. Now, Paul, verse 13, and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, John Mark, he apparently at this moment departed from them. We don't know why he departed. There are some guesses. It could have been that Paul had now assumed leadership and John Mark, who was connected to Barnabas through their family, uh, they were family members together, did not like the new leadership of Paul. Perhaps the new focus on Gentiles uh, rattled him a bit and made him uncomfortable. Perhaps it was fear that he had of the danger ahead. Uh, It might have been the malaria that was common in that region that Paul himself might have even physically succumbed to. Or perhaps he was just homesick. He was a young man after all. We do know that his departure became a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas later on in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 15. But we'll save our discussion about that for that passage when we get there. But Paul is growing up. Barnabas is a great man, allowing Paul this leadership. It says Paul and his companions. So he really is taking the lead. But then, verse 14, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading verse 15 from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now they didn't preach in Perga, but they went up into Antioch in Pisidia. Some people think that Paul had contracted malaria, like I mentioned, down in Pamphylia, and so they'd sought to get to a higher elevation away from the coastal plains where that malaria would be common, up into Antioch, not the Antioch they'd come from, their home church, but a different Antioch in the region of Pisidia. Now, Paul actually said in Galatians 4, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So perhaps he was driven up into the Galatian territory that Antioch and Pisidia would include because of a bodily ailment, some kind of infirmity. And God is able to use anything to get us where he wants us to be. So after being invited to, if there was anyone with a word of encouragement, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, what we're going to read here in its entirety is Paul's first recorded message in the book of Acts. So he waves his hand, gathers everyone's attention, and says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God, verse 17, of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So there he is, you know, gathering them. And he just begins to talk about the time when God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and that God with uplifted arm led them out. 
And for about 40 years, verse 18, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And what Paul's doing here as he's reciting all of this is he's giving them Israel's history in miniature up to the present day. All this, he said, verse 20, took about 450 years. Years, So the conquest of Canaan plus the wilderness sojourn and then uh, 400 years in the land. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So he's again, just going through the history of Israel. You have the you know, time from Abraham to the wilderness sojourn to the conquest of Canaan. Then after Joshua's conquest of Canaan, the time of the judges, then the time of Samuel with Saul becoming the king for 40 years. And when he had removed him, verse 22, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart and who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he rushed to the promises that God had made concerning David. That God had told David or promised to David that he would have a descendant to sit on the throne eternally to, you know, there in Jerusalem. And of course, Christ is the fulfillment. He is called in the Old Testament the branch of of David. He's the offshoot of David. He's the horn of David in Psalm 132. And so he's declaring here that Jesus is that Messiah, is that horn, is that branch, is that anointed one that we've been waiting for from the line of David. Before his coming, verse 24, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, of course, Paul is skipping over a lot of history. He rushed to David so that he could rush to Christ. Brothers, he said in verse 26, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, what follows here, or what Paul is laying out, is a description of how salvation is granted. That's why he says in verse 26, to us has been sent the message of salvation. He announces first that certain scriptures were fulfilled when Israel rejected Jesus. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and all of the animal sacrifices and the sacrificial system pointed forward to the crucifying of the Messiah. He was crucified, verse 29, on a tree, which is an allusion to the cross, but is 
spoken of as a tree because the law spoke of a person being killed on a tree as being cursed. And so he's, he's trying to show them Christ was cursed for us. But God, verse 30, raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now Christ, of course, had appeared for many days after his resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, who had gone back to the tomb after Peter and John had seen that it was empty. He appeared to the other group of women. He appeared to the two disciples on Emmaus Road. He appeared to Peter. He appeared on Sunday evening at the dinner hideout with the ten disciples in the locked room. He appeared the following Sunday night to Thomas with all of the other disciples, so all eleven. He appeared at the Sea of Galilee to the seven disciples in John 21. He appeared to five hundred at one time on an appointed mountain in Galilee. He appointed to his own brother, uh, appeared to his own brother, James, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And he appeared on the 40th day, the final commissioning, the day that he ascended back into heaven. And so that's what he means when he says he appeared. He, He literally appeared. And we bring, verse 32, you, the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul speaks of Jesus's not only resurrection when he says raising Jesus, but also his ascension. Just as David was raised up to be king, so Jesus has been raised up, has ascended to be the king of kings. And as verse 34, for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way from Isaiah 53, 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In other words, the promises for David belong now to Christ. Therefore, verse 35, he says also in another Psalm, Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That was a prophecy that Christ would not decompose in the grave, but that he would resurrect. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, which we can all only hope to do, fell asleep, verse 36, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see that corruption. Let it be known to you, verse 38, therefore, brothers, that Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he begins to preach to them about forgiveness of sins. He tells them that they could be freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, Paul would develop justification by faith more fully in Romans and Galatians, but it's fascinating to see him laying it out here in his very first sermon. Beware, therefore, verse 40, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes from Habakkuk 1.5, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Now, Judah, Habakkuk 
had prophesied would fall to Babylon, which would be God's doing. Here, Paul left unnamed the source of judgment on the unbelieving Jews in his day. His warning is simple, believe or be judged. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting, the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Just a beautiful line there to move on, to continue on in God's grace. Now, the next Sabbath, so Paul has primed the pump. He's caught the imagination of the populace there. And they gather together, the, almost the whole city, to hear the word of the Lord. Just beautiful. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So this widespread interest had the effect of stirring up the jealous opposition of unbelieving Jewish leaders. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, a question is, why was it necessary that the word of God be spoken first to the Jews in this city? Well, Paul seems to have been unable to be released to the Gentiles until he'd given the Jews an opportunity. The gospel message is fundamentally Jewish at first glance. The Old Testament is alluded to. The Messiah is predicted. Promises are given. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first, Paul said in Romans 1.16, and also the Greek. And so he announces, he says, look, we have to go because God made us a light to the Gentiles. And of course, that was spoken of Israel uh, in Isaiah 49, 6, it was spoken of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and it was spoken of Paul here in Acts 13, and it should be spoken of each and every one of us in our modern context. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So God had certain people that were appointed to eternal life. He had chosen them, elected them. He, Luke wanted to make it, wanted to use this phrase not to create some theological quandary, but to make it clear that God had chosen, elected, decided for Gentiles also. But the Jews, verse 30, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the Jewish enemies uh, had contacts in high places. So they went to the leading men of the city and stirred them up against Paul and Barnabas, who 
you know, figured we've preached the message. They shook the dust off their feet and they moved on as Christ had taught them to in Matthew 10, verse 14, telling us to shake the dust off their off our feet when rejected and leave that house or town and move on preaching that gospel message. And they were filled, it says there by Luke, with joy and with the Holy Spirit because it's a joyful thing to be used by the living God. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.